Well, we're here with AJ Swoboda. Did I say that properly? But you said it better than I say it, man. Amazing. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> uh, man, thanks for uh, joining the podcast. We've had this on the schedule now for, gosh, over a month. So I'm so glad we can make it happen. Yeah. Um, yes. And uh, kudos to the two of you. You do uh, remarkable work with um, the Vast Podcast. It's an honor to be with you. But in all seriousness, it's, it's been a joy to uh, get to hear a few of your episodes. I loved when you had John Thompson and um, you, you got, you're doing great work. It's a joy to be with you. Thank oh, you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so you are a professor, you're an author. How many books have you written, uh, so far? Um, I have written, uh, right now, um, I've written 10 books. A couple of them are books that I would not recommend you read. Um, <laughs> uh, because they're academic and, and about four people in the world would find them at all interesting. Uh, but 10, um, and, and I'm on, in the process of working right now on a new book that I'm very excited about on the topic of desire, desire and Christian formation. Cool. Cool. Yep. Cool. And is, um, after doubt your latest book or have you written one since then? Yes. Yeah, After Doubt was the was the was the most recent book, and and of all the books that I've written, aside from my PhD dissertation, was the one that um, ha- really took me the longest to write. It was a, a cumulative project of about twenty years of work of working wow. um, with college students and uh, planting a church and just walking with a ton of people through the doubt and deconstruction stage of the Christian life. Um, so it yes, uh, it's the most recent book, but I would say of all the books I've written. There are more uh, more tears invested in that book than anything else I've, I've ever read. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And did you, I mean, it sort of has come right on time, you know, like talk about a, a timely book for. Are there other people talking about deconstruction? <laughs> yeah. You just, I've never even you, heard I don't know the if word you realize before. that. No one's talking about it right now. Yeah. So the. The, uh, yeah. the product market fit of uh, after, <laughs> after tout. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's been, wild. Uh, it, it's insane right now what uh, what this word has come to mean, and I think it's come to mean a lot of things that I never even thought it could mean. Uh, so, but it, it it really it's true it's true. The book did did come at a time that I think was very timely for a lot of people, um, and certainly with anything that you ever write, you have regrets. There are certain things I wish I didn't put in there or did put in there. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, I'm I'm really proud of the book and and think it's been a helpful addition to the conversation. Yeah, it, it really has. We want to get into the book and just kind of hear your thoughts on it. But first, I wanted to ask you um, to get a little bit of of background. So I was listening to your interview with Preston Sprinkle uh, on Theology in the Raw, yep. and you said something really interesting. So you didn't grow up in the faith. Um, you came to faith, I guess, as a teenager, and you you made a statement, and I want to I want to kind of read it so I don't I don't forget it exactly. But you essentially talked about how um, your your process of and correct me if I'm if I misheard this. Deconstruction was more from sort of this like the progressive side towards orthodoxy. You were talking to him just sort of about the sort of the the more conservative and and um, progressive. How you sort of have worked your way more towards orthodoxy from the progressive side. I yeah. don't know. Just give us like your quick background. How did you come to Christ? What led you to I don't know, like starting to explore this book and give us the background. Yeah. Yeah, well, we, there's a there's sort of a um, in in theology, and I guess in general, you could even say this in politics. Uh, there's sort of this general unspoken assumption 
that people always deconstruct to the left. Mm. Um, meaning, meaning you, it's always like, it's always the person who like was raised in the conservative town in Kansas, mm-hmm. you know, who's like shredded their faith and now they're, you know, they're raw and they've sort of, in, in, in my experience, uh, I was raised in, uh, I'm an, you know, born in New Mexico, but I, I was raised here in Oregon from one on, uh, raised in a, in a very uh, kind of progressive, um, secular progressive household. My mom was nominally Catholic, but, um, not, not in a Christian home at all. And, and so becoming a Christian, um, you know, you, you always hear, it's funny, you hear, it's very common to hear like kids that are raised in conservative homes later on in life, reject conservatism because they were raised in the conservative home. And I, I don't know why that, I, you know, part of that is, you know, you just, you react against church upbringing. But mine was the exact opposite. Um, when I came to faith, um, I, I met Jesus out of a very progressive secular household. And so when I told my dad, uh, who is a, a, a progressive Buddhist, when I told him that I had become an evangelical Christian, uh, it was like, <laughs> it was like, a, it was like I was coming out to my conservative parents. <laughs> I mean, my dad, my poor dad just didn't know what to do with me. Um, and, um, and my mom, eventually my mom became a Christian uh, and I baptized her when I was 19 years old, but, Wow. Um, wow. Yes, yeah, it, it was kind of the opposite. And I, that doesn't mean I went from progressive to conservative. But but I do think part of this is everybody on some level has deconstructed something. I mean, we've all undone something that we used to think. And nobody is free of deconstruction. It just so turns out for me and the environment I was raised, I deconstructed my secular progressive, you know, sensibilities mm-hmm. as a child. And how did you how did you come to Christ? Man, you know, um I hate math. I have some, I have some math related trauma in my life. Uh, <laughs> I hate math. Have uh, you deconstructed my, math as a result of that? Yeah. I don't believe in it anymore. I've totally, un- <laughs> I've, un- I've, done, I've, un- I've done it. Undo- I've done it all. I was in, plus two, my, I was in my math class and I overheard the two girls behind me uh, arguing about when Jesus was coming back. They'd been reading the left behind series. Uh Oh, Ooh. Uh-oh. I had never read the Bible. Michael is a raging dispensationalist. I am. I'm yes. trying to. Uh, I, I my I favorite that about you, my Mike. favorite book is the is 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 the Bible Code. I don't know if you remember the Bible Code. Oh, um, yeah, have you yeah, read yeah. the Have you read the Harbinger? <laughs> uh, Sorry. Go on. No, I'm 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 now realizing that. Um, I don't know if this conversation can continue or not. I mean, I, I mean, <laughs> the, yeah, so I was so in, you're math in math class. I was in math class and these two girls were arguing about when Jesus was coming back and I didn't know he came in the first place. And so I went home, my dad, uh, had given me his college Bible. And so I sat in my bedroom at 16 years old and I opened the gospels. I, I opened the Bible. I did the thing that you do when you don't know what to read. And I just sort of flipped it open and I sat for about an hour and a half and read the whole book of Leviticus. And oh, then there you go. Was well done. Utterly creeped out and then closed mm-hmm. it and then went as far right as I could. And by God's sheer grace, I read uh, the gospel of Matthew when Jesus calls Matthew the tax collector. And I had a visceral, real experience with the living Jesus in my bedroom. Wow. And mm. began following Jesus and then 
Um, I eventually led my, my mom became a Christian. I baptized her when I was 19. And really, God has been doing an incredible work in my family ever since. Why did your dad give you his Bible? Well, um, my dad's awesome, and I love him. My parents are divorced, but my dad, um, who is a Buddhist, I don't know. I guess he didn't need it anymore or something like that. But it was like it was like his college Bible. And so he had just given me his his I had it was like this old dusty King James version. You'd like it mm. as a dispensationalist. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. of your Bible. <laughs> it's, probably, it's probably really big. Is it really, the Schofield no, loose, Bible? Yeah, it's really tiny. It's really small and really dusty. Mm. Um, and I and I opened it and I read it and thank God I did. Wow, God you I had did. a visceral experience encountering Christ, reading the Bible of all things. Mm. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. They didn't have Bible Project videos back then, so I had to like was, read yeah. them. <laughs> yeah, and um, and it was it was a life changing experience. It really was. It really Amazing. was. Hmm. Yep. Yep. And so, so that, you, that was my. As you could say that was my that was my first deconstruction experience. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> was was deconstructing uh, my non belief. Yeah. So I don't know, maybe just give us like the quick from that moment where you have this visceral encounter with Jesus reading your old dusty King James Version Bible in your bedroom to writing this book about this, you know, process of doubting and and deconstructing. Just give us a quick explanation of that and then maybe just give us kind of the big 30,000 foot view into what the book is about and what led you to write it. Yeah, well, they, they say, you know, there's a, there's a saying in the Reformed world, in the, in the Calvinist world, where when you become a Calvinist, you know, I think they call it the cage stage, where it's just better for them to put you in a cage for like a period of time because you're just so <laughs> gregarious that it's probably mm-hmm. better for you to just be quiet for a bit. I kind of did the evangelical cage stage um, okay. where I was immediately I started going to acquire the fire um, yeah, you did. I went to acquire the fire. It, it was uh-huh. actually very impactful in my yep. life. And I, I say that sort of jokingly, but I mean, I was, I was all into that kind of evangelical subculture, got really mm-hmm. into, um, that world. Uh, mm-hmm. and I got, I was on fire for Jesus big time and then went to college. I went to the university of Oregon, uh, where I, uh, I wanted to be a pre-med student and I start wanted to kind of prepare to do what my dad does. And in the middle of my freshman year, I was reading the Bible again, and I was reading the Gospel of John, and I was reading John 5, and I found a verse that was missing in the Bible. And I had never, I had never ever thought about canon, how the Bible had been put together, whatnot. And John 5, 4 was missing from my Bible. And at the time, I didn't know how to, where to take, I mean, back, you know, right, we didn't have, um, you know, we didn't have... Uh, theology in the raw or the vast podcast to answer all your awesome questions back then. So you had to like, you had to like talk to your pastor and stuff um, or read a book or go to your John MacArthur study Bible. And I called, my answer was I called the, uh, the Bible answer man and uh, on the radio. And he, I asked him the question online, what do I do with this? This isn't there. And he said on air, he said, well, we don't have an answer. So I'll send you a note. Uh, or I'll send you a tape. And he sent me a tape. And on the tape, this wasn't the actual Bible answer guy. It was a guy similar to him. But he said, on the tape, he said, um, don't worry about John 5-4. Um, just keep following Jesus and don't ask questions. Hey, <laughs> great strategy. 
and and re- to, if I'm if I'm really candid with you, yeah. that cemented into me a a early on kind of belief that the Bible and Christian faith can't handle our questions. It's it's too much. Mm. And it wasn't, I mean, that really messed with me for about six months. And by God's sheer grace, I actually got to tell him this when I introduced him at the Missio Alliance conference about seven years ago. By God's grace, I had been reading a book by N.T. Wright and called The Last Word, which is a book on, on, on the Bible and on the formation of the Bible. And that book gave me permission to ask questions and still love Jesus. And that experience shaped me deeply. And that is, we are probably more shaped by our questions than anything else. Where we take our questions, what we do with them, and how we address them. And that, I think that really ultimately led to 20 years later, me writing this book. Most Christians do not know where to go with their questions. And unfortunately, because a lot of us feel like we're in church environments where our questions aren't allowed, we take our questions uh, to places that probably aren't the best place to take our questions. Mm-hmm. Um, so really, this th- that, I mean, I think that was the seed of the book. The seed of the book was, what do I do with the fact that there's a Bible, miss, a verse missing in the Bible, and I didn't know what to do with it. Now, I know now, and, and I'm not even going to explain it because I want everybody to like go read their Bible now. But um, at the end of the day, like that question really provoked in me a desire to want to help Christians understand doubt and understand and understand questions and understand where they go with their questions. I mean, we're all going to take our questions somewhere. If we can't take it to God's people, we're going to take it to TikTok. And so mm. I, I want, I want to begin to get to the place where we learn how to take our questions to the trust, the trusted people of, of God, of God's people and take it to the right places. Yeah. So that's my answer. Hmm. Why do you think it's been so difficult for people to take their questions to people in the church or to mm. church leadership? Maybe I've just, um, since mm. I've been saved, had some pretty great people around me that I could ask questions to. So that's not something I've always identified with, but I've heard a lot of people say that to me, as I'm sure you have as well. Um, why do you think that is? Is it lack of knowledge in the people that they're asking? Is it just lack of patience? What do you think that has been over the last little while that has made people feel like I can't have those questions? Yeah, there's probably a bunch of dimensions to this. And by the way, praise God that you, you both have really, you're leading the way on how to pastor and shepherd and care for people. And I mean that not jokingly, like if, if if, to create an environment where people are allowed to ask questions and bring their, their doubts to the surface, that's, that's hard work. I can say that when I was a pastor, which I, I pastored for about 20 years, um, one of the reasons that I can say as a pastor, it was really hard to shepherd people who were going through deconstruction or doubt is, is honestly just how much time they needed from me. And I mm-hmm. almost, there, there was a sense at which I'm, I'm being completely vulnerable here. I'm not saying that I'm proud of this answer. I'm saying that um, the person who's got a lot of questions, they need more than a Sunday service. They need a friend to walk with them. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, when you're running a church that's growing and you've got less and less time, you invest more and more time into that Sunday service. And it's really difficult to invest relationally in people that need you. Mm. And so I think there's a time element. I also think 
and I can say this again out of my authority of having served as a pastor for a good season of my life, is that when you're walking with people who express doubts and maybe experiencing deconstruction, a lot of the things they're probably thinking may come across as critiques to you as a leader. And so it re, mm-hmm. it, it almost, it requires you. My, my uh, counselor, I have a counselor and a spiritual director. I need a lot of help. Um, <laughs> my counselor, I've, I've noticed this about my counselor and both my spiritual director and my counselor. Both of them, when I express to them frustrations that I have with God, the Bible, or the church, neither of them ever get offended. Mm-hmm. They, and I asked my counselor once, I said, what is that? What is, how, do you, how do you do that? And apparently in the counseling world, they have a word for this. It's called containment. And containment is the ability for somebody to share their emotions without you personally getting offended at their question. Mm. And I think a lot of pastors, Christians, I don't know if I generalize it. I think we, when people share with us frustrations they have about the faith or church or Christianity, we don't know how to practice containment. We don't know how to allow them to have their own emotional journey without us taking it seriously, without us taking it personally, personally, mm-hmm. personally. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is they don't share what's really going on because they don't want to hurt us. And then, all, and then, and then we get emotionally involved when in reality, one of the most important things we can do as shepherds, leaders, and teachers, I'm in my office when I'm in office hours and my students are pouring out to me, their struggles. One of the greatest gifts that I can give them is to be so emotionally at peace that they they can like shred their faith in front of me or shred the church or shred nothing and it doesn't it 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 doesn't destroy me i'm able to just let it be what it is and then i become a safe person if here's the problem if we're not safe people for people to talk about their doubts and and, and whatnot with they're going to take their doubts somewhere so mm-hmm. they're either going to take it to, to us or TikTok. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I, you know, part of it is just as a pastor, it's really hard to not take it personally. Right. But we've got to yeah. learn to do that. A good counselor does that. Mm-hmm. We need to learn to yeah, do that too. Resonate with that a lot. Do you think there's any, one of the things that I worry about AJ when it comes to the deconstruction conversation is a lot of times I feel like we're using the wrong word. And at this mm-hmm. point it's a runaway train. The word is what it is. Um, Sometimes I have concern about people when we're having conversation around deconstruction that because we're using the wrong word in the sense that what we're really talking about is not is not uh, deconstruction in like the traditional sense of that word, in the philosophical sense of that word. We're talking about uh, questioning our beliefs, picking them apart, dissecting, you know, what we've inherited that isn't biblical um, and reconstructing or rebuilding our beliefs, putting them back together in a sense that is more biblical instead of less biblical. That should be the goal of, uh, <laughs> of after, of after doubt. Right. But that's not actually what a lot of people are doing. And, um, what a lot of people are doing is they're falling into postmodernity, and yeah. they're not just questioning their beliefs to get more biblical. They're, uh, they're, they're deconstructing, I guess, in like the more, Deridian sense of the word. Yes. And so one of the concerns that I have pastorally is sometimes I feel like we're using the wrong word because 
I'm kind of a paranoid person sometimes. Like I think <laughs> that if I just use the wrong word, people are going to all of a sudden go down like a Google rabbit hole and all of a sudden they're going to learn what deconstruction really is. And they're going to want to look for deconstruction in every single text that's ever been written. And they're going to deconstruct every single word of the Bible. And before you know it, the, the Bible doesn't mean anything to them because the Bible never meant anything right. at all. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which obviously I don't uh, believe any of that. But in saying all that, do we have some some – Ditches on the side of this road that we're nervous about people falling into. Oh man. Oh, oh boy. Well, okay. Okay. So let's back up just a little bit. Okay. Cause, yes, cause the, the, the deconstruction, let's define our terms. Great. What, what do we mean by deconstruction? It's re- it's almost impossible to define this term because what yes. different communities mean by this are completely different things. Um, it's like nailing jello to the wall. It's almost impossible to define this word uh, across the board. You said, Jake, you used the word in a, in a postmodern right. sense. So uh, for a postmodern deconstruction is an inherent undoing of traditional more and and ideas for the purpose of sort of recreating a new ethic in a new way. It's like, it's literally destroying the house. Right. But can deconstruction, on the other hand, can that be a really good thing? So what we're really talking about in, in some sense is we're talking about changing our mind as Christians. Is, is being a Christian, is part of being a Christian changing your mind about stuff? <laughs> is, that, is that a legitimate part of being a Christian? Well, yeah. we are told in the Bible that we are called to uh, the, the Greek word, the word repentance in the Bible is the Greek word metanoia. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the word metanoia, it literally means metanoia, change your mind. To change your mind is our call. We are called to be transformed to the mind of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and that means we are constantly willing to undo, dismantle, deconstruct any idea in our brain that is not Christ. That, that kind of deconstruction, we have a word for it. It's just repentance. Right. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, we're talking about two different things. Because for one, deconstruction is do away with the Christianity and everything it says about sexuality and uh, gender and truth and do away with that. And let's start at the base all over again. Mm-hmm. That is not the kind of deconstruction that I'm 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 looking to. What no, I mean I by deconstruction, yeah. what I'm talking about is I'm talking about those good faith moments in our life where we realize we were handed some theological concept at some point in our journey that is just straight up hogwash that needs to be done. And yeah. all of us have those. Yes. All of us at some point have had the spirit of Jesus revealed to us places in our theology, our ideas, and our thinking that were antichrist. And, but I mean, isn't it astounding? Name one other religion in the world that the sign that you're on the right track is your willingness to admit you've been on the wrong track. Like it's the sign (laughs) to say I've been wrong is the sign that you're willing to say, but I'm following something greater than myself. I mean, yeah, if I love you what you're saying. Yeah. So the, I, all I'm saying is there's different sides. You said ditches. I like that word. Um, the, the, the form of deconstruction that we are seeing a lot of right now, which is 
I'm going to strip away Christianity of everything that scripture says and what Jesus said to mm-hmm. sort of recreate in my own image mm-hmm. a life-giving life philosophy. Exactly. That's not deconstruction. That's, well, that's unbelief. Unbelief. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I think that's kind of my point pastorally is that seems to be the scenario that is taking place. Mm-hmm. And so I'm almost like, do we need to just start using a different word? And I recognize that I'm talking to somebody who's written a book that involves the word deconstruction. So, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm not picking at that. I'm just saying pastorally, do we need to start using different terminology? Because when I take my deconstructing self to the internet, what I am going to find is the TikTok videos. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, and, you know, I'm going to find somebody who said Jesus was a racist and he repented of his racism, like espousing all kinds of non-scriptural heretical things. Right. And so I don't know, I'm a local church pastor. That's where I go in my head immediately. It's like, do we need to start using different terminology to help people through their, uh, their doubts? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't, I, I, I will be the first to agree with you that the word deconstruction a is entirely a biblical it's, it's found nowhere in scripture. So obviously we're using biblical category. We're using non-biblical categories that we're looking at the Bible through. So that creates, right. That's, that creates a problem in and of itself. No, no question. However, deconstruction is the conversation our culture is having right now. And so mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, to be a good missionary, you've got to use the language of, of, the, of, the, of the moment that you're in. And, and so I don't think it's best to just jettison the term because, um, because of what people will find on TikTok. But I will say it is not a biblical category. I, I am struck that the New Testament distinguishes between um, two categories, doubt uh, and unbelief. And th- those are two biblical categories, doubt and unbelief. And the difference between those two, it, as far as I see it, the difference between those two is represented by the characters in the New Testament of Judas Iscariot and Peter, mm-hmm. who both do the same thing. That b- Both Judas and Peter have one thing in common. Both of them, at a moment in their discipleship journey, turn their back on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, they have one thing in common. The only thing that's different between Judas and Peter is that one was willing to return and be free. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. Well, I didn't hear what you said, but I'm sure it was funny. Um, I said it was predestination. Yeah. It, it, one of them was reformed. I, I totally <laughs> agree. Yeah. No, but my, my, you know, they, no, I love our, what you're saying. You know, our hero in the faith, Peter, uh, he did what Judas did. He just was willing to be restored. Mm-hmm. And, you know, unbelief, which is language that, you know, Paul talks about those that have shipwrecked the faith. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about those that have chucked Jesus um, and, mm-hmm. and are unwilling to return. But all of us have turned our back on Jesus at some mm-hmm. level. And, uh, and that, that is a different category. We have, there's grace for that. There's grace. That's really, that's really good and really helpful. I think even about um, the scripture in 2 Timothy where, and maybe you see these two categories right there. I think it's 2 Timothy 2. If we deny him, he will deny us. Mm. So there's unbelief. But next verse, if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. Mm. So that's that fit moments of faithlessness is like doubt. Mm. But God restores us when we turn back to him in repentance. Yeah. Uh, there was a German theologian named uh, Helmut Tillichie, 
who wrote a great little book years ago called A Little Handbook for Young Theologians. And in one of his books, he talks about how, um, which I believe is that book, he says a lot of Christians um, are really good at being graceful towards people's sin, but they're totally graceless when it comes to bad theology. Mm-hmm. And and his point is that we like we forgive others when they like you, they act wrong, but man, if your theology of the Trinity is just a little off, like anathema, be gone. And he has this little <laughs> section, this little section where he says, if God is willing to forgive us for all of our sin, why would He not also be equally forgiving about our silly theology? And I, I think. What, what often happens in conservative evangelical circles is we hold up a really, really big, graceful God who died on the cross for the world. But the minute like your theology doesn't reflect exactly what their tradition states, they're, they're gone. And I just, I, I guess I want to appropriate a theology of grace for those of us that believe theologically, maybe we haven't arrived yet. And that the journey of deconstruction for a lot of people is people trying to follow Jesus to to take seriously what they've been given and learn to to let go of some maybe of the bad ideas they were given and and that we need to give just grace for the theological journey, a ton of grace. How could we be graceful towards sin but not towards bad theology? Um gosh, what a weird world that would be if that if that was if God was graceful in our sin and forgave that, but he didn't forgive our, our theology. I mean, we are saved, are we not? We're saved through faith, not by beliefs. Um, and that, and that, that's important, meaning we're saved through faith in Christ, not through a perfectly articulated belief system, which none of us have arrived at. I like that. I, I think you'd have to parse that out a little bit because there are certain beliefs, it seems to me anyway, that uh, are a part of our faith. Sure. I think of, sure, sure like First Corinthians 15. There are Resurrection, baby. 100%. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Right? 100%. Yeah. But, but we've got to be clear here because we're not saved through right beliefs. If that were the case, the demons would all be saved um, who, who have orthodox theology. In fact, they're the first to proclaim Jesus as the Holy One of God in the New Testament. They call Jesus the Son of God way before any of the disciples do. Um, Right belief is very, very, very important. But right belief is a reflection of your love for God, not the other way around. You want to believe rightly because you love God. You want to believe truthfully because you love God. And because you love God, you want to get it right. But we're not, we're not saved because we believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. The Mormons believe in the inerrancy of the Bible. So, I mean, <laughs> that you can have very, very clear orthodox beliefs and still not be pursuing the way of Jesus. It's totally possible. Yeah. And I think you've nuanced that out really well. Why do you think, um, why do you think this deconstruction, some people are calling it a movement, whatever you want to call it. Why do you think that it's happening now with such Mm. intensity? Um, what are your thoughts on that? Obviously, you've been around this conversation for a long time, and you've written about it. What is it about now? What is it about the last five, ten years uh, that seems to have made this come to the surface in a way that maybe it hasn't in a long time? 
Yeah, I had been. I was reading this. Um, I was reading this guy. It was like an urban theorist um, guy. He was an arch- He was an architecture guy. He was like writing about urban architecture. Um, this was years ago, and he made a comment about one of the unique things about urban environments is when you move to an urban environment. If you're a minority, if you're a minority in some social group or, or ethnic group, or if you're a minority, a sexual minority, or, or something like that, if you're a minority and you move to an urban center, it can be a very liberating experience because all of a sudden there's enough people for you to be able to connect mm-hmm. with people that are similar to you, mm-hmm. right? So you can find that other minority community in that urban core somewhere. And I think what's happened is no longer do we need to move to the urban cores to find people that are asking the same questions that we do by virtue of this little device that we have in our our pockets, uh, an iPhone. Mm -hmm. We now are having the experience every day through our iPhone what people had when they moved to the cities back in the early 1800s or 1900s. And that is that we are now able to see a world in which there are a ton of people now asking these similar questions. And so that gives a sense of freedom to begin to live into those questions and and question your own faith. Now, I'm not going to say that's entirely bad. And the reason I'm going to say that's not entirely bad is what that does for me as a Christian leader is it forces me to have to grow up and it really forces me to have to get on my knees and pray a lot. Mm. I think that's a radical gift for me as a leader. Like I have to, I can't just give some pat answer from a systematic theology that I read in undergrad. I have to like, I have to be thoughtful <laughs> and nuanced and I have to know, I have to listen and I have to pause and reflect and not give trite answers. It's making, it it forces us to become really deep people. Um, but I think to your question, I think what is happening is essentially uh, our phones have in a way put a sort of lubricant to the relative relativism of our experience because there's so many people asking these questions. It, it causes us to go inward. We now have a community of people that are asking these questions and uh, I don't have to move to the city to ask them. We're just, we're, we're now able to connect our desires and questions with a community online now. So, it, you know, it, it was really interesting uh, when, um, a couple, about a year ago, somebody sent me a video of what's happening to the Uyghurs and the Uyghur Muslims in China. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And th- they sent me a video. It was like a, it was a, um, it was a drone, it was drone footage of, um, of literally Uyghur Muslims being put on a train to go off to a concentration camp. There's mm-hmm. a, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there's a genocide going on in China right now. And mm-hmm. people are being put on these trains and being sent off to these re-education camps. Well, what do they do at a re-education camp? They do two things. (laughs) Number one, they separate you from all the people that you know and love. And then secondly, they have you watch videos uh, all day long. Re-education videos. Hmm. When I I learned what they do in these re-education centers, it was in the middle of COVID and all of a sudden it dawned on me. That is like literally what we've been doing for two years. Hmm. We have been separated from our families, our churches, and the people that we love. And we have spent the whole time on Twitter, watching CNN and, mm-hmm. uh, and Fox News. Mm-hmm. And every pastor in the world can attest to this. It feels like people have come back from the pandemic radicalized. Mm-hmm. 
like radicalized. Mm. Something has happened. One of my friends said Mm -hmm. on uh, pastor appreciation day this last year, he told his church, he said, you want to appreciate me? Do it. Mm -hmm. Do this. Give me one week where you give me more authority than Tucker Carlson. (laughs) And his point is we, you spent the whole year being re And everyone in the congregation's head exploded. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure he got some letters that week, but yeah, the, the point being, I mean, you ask, why is this happening right now? What else could happen when we're separated from the people that we love and we spend all of our time watching videos? Mm-hmm. No wonder. It, it actually turns out, this is shocking. Um, it actually turns out the Bible's like, right. And as a man thinketh, <laughs> so, so his life goes. <laughs> right. And when you spend your every living day watching videos about everything that's wrong with Christianity in the Bible, it turns out your brain starts following what you're watching. Right. And there was a, there was a guy named uh, uh, Rene Girard who coined this idea of what he called mimetic desire. And his idea was basically this desire. Human desire is sticky. We pick it up from other people. We mimic other people's desire. And actually you see that in the new Testament uh, a bunch. So for example, when Stephen is standing uh, before the Sanhedrin and he's about to be killed. Um, why is he standing and then only falls to the ground when they stone him? Why? Because when he looks to heaven, Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. It's the only time in the New Testament Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. He is doing what he sees Jesus doing. We Here's the point. We, we end up becoming what we look at. So no wonder... The incessant New Testament command, keep your eyes on Jesus. <laughs> no wonder we're told to do that over and over again, because we ultimately become what we spend all of our time looking at. Mm-hmm. So no shot. We are becoming what we're looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess that's kind of my point earlier, right? It's like some, something in me is kind of like, I wonder if there's a, a change of conversation that needs to be had with our uh with the people in our churches, um, and it, it's not an ostrich thing to me. It's a, it's like a, no. yo, how can I help you mm-hmm. um, get to get through what it is, what it is that you're walking through right now? Um, and to me, the answer to that is like what you just said: we become what we behold. And so, helping people to behold truth, um, I think, is a, a massive part of that. Yeah, we we are most shaped by the environments that we can smell. Um, the, the, uh, can you guys Frozen? just hear me and see me? Because you froze. Are you there? Yeah, it froze Sorry. for a second. Go for it. Okay. Okay. I'll say that one as a second. Um, we are most shaped um, by the environments in which there is smell. And what I mean by that is um, my... I have a family member who during COVID, um, who's a recovering alcoholic, couldn't go to AA meetings anymore because AA went online. And mm. she said, you know, when you when you take AA online, uh, it doesn't work. And there's there's only one reason it doesn't work. It can't work because when you go online, there's one thing you can't do. You can't smell. And when you're dealing with alcoholics, smell is everything. That's the only way you can tell mm. if somebody's being serious or not, mm-hmm. um, if they're actually clean or not. Dang. And I, and I think... Basically, the church, wow. the aroma of Christ, we, 
We are most shaped by environments that we can smell. We need, we really need to radically re-embrace the importance of being in a room together for a period of time to seek Jesus together. Our hearts long for it. Our, yeah. our bodies yearn for it. Our souls learn, yearn for it. Our spirits yearn for it. Disembodied religious experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we, we just got to come back together again. That We are yeah. shaped most in environments where we can smell. You can't reproduce smell online. Wow. Maybe you can, but it'd be awkward. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. You're, yeah. you're talking like a real radical right-wing pastor over there, AJ, who wants the people <laughs> to, come to come to church. Open up the doors. Open up the doors. But I love what you're saying. It reminds me of, um, is it James K. Smith, his whole stuff on like habituation and... Um, Yes. Uh, yes. How our, our habits are what form us, and it's like our actual physical practices. Um, yes. Like I say, all of everything I'm saying with total sensitivity towards non-able-bodied people who cannot come to church, immunocompromised people who cannot come to church. This is not in any way, shape, or form a minimization of those needs. Yep. But to take those particular conversations and make that as a some sort of argument that we don't need to press in and try to be together. I don't, I'm not, I'm just saying here as best as we can. You're just being um, biblical. Just mm -hmm, say it. mm -hmm. Come to church people. (laughs) It really does make a difference. I I mean, all the difference in the world. Jesus, Jesus knew what he was talking about when, when he launched his church and uh, it was part of that central to that is the gathering. So let me let me ask you guys a question really quickly and this is good because you AJ you've said you've been a pastor and you know Jake you're obviously a senior pastor. So I'm a person listening to this and I am for lack of a better phrase I'm deconstructing. Maybe I'm struggling in my faith, maybe I just am having a very difficult time looking at things like gender or sexuality or whatever the biblical thing is that I'm looking at and I'm matching that up to my feelings and it doesn't add up and I can't Mm -hmm. figure it out. What I'm hearing now, both of you remember what we just talked about, about questioning pastors and not getting defensive. Um, (laughs) What I'm hearing you both say is get to church, which I say, well, of course you're pastors. Mm -hmm. You're going to say that. Mm And I believe that too. But my question is, for someone who is is having these kinds of things going on in their mind, they've been watching whatever deconstruction, progressive Christian TikTok, mm-hmm. whatever it has been for the last two years. Um, why is it that they like like they're hearing that, but they're they're not doing that? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? I don't know. I don't know if I'm asking a question as I am just saying. Yes. I think that's the problem we come up against. Is that? Yeah. Um, we're actually we're we're telling someone who doesn't want to be told this. Mm-hmm. I well, I think at the end of the day, if somebody is is wrestling through their beliefs on that level, um, the the first conversation to me that I want to have is helping the person to see that they are absorbing the um, the beliefs of the culture around them, mm-hmm. and so. To me, it's really important that we all recognize that we are products of our environment. And just because we've adopted the latest progressive belief doesn't mean that we're um, enlightened or uh, 
we've ascended into some intellectual realm where all of a sudden we're free from the shackles of religiosity or whatever. Um, I think it's helping people recognize that we're, we're slaves to our own culture. Mm -hmm. And so if you really want to be, uh, uh, if you really want to transcend beyond the, the social imagination that you're surrounded by, then doing something like getting to church and reading the Bible, um, is actually a, a pretty radical thing mm -hmm. and it can be a really transformative thing. Um, and, uh, just to use your words, AJ, like we all haven't a theologically arrived yet. So why would we look at our latest progressive beliefs and view that as having arrived somewhere? Um, that's better than what Jesus has to say about mm -hmm. life and reality. So it, it's not just a religious trope to be like, Oh yeah, we should come together right. and we should read the scriptures. I think there's genuine power in discovering mm -hmm. truth there. Um, and in being changed for the better as people. Mm -hmm. Yes, and to add to that, Jake, um, just absorbing conservative values equally does not make you enlightened or transcendent above the rest. I think what we're trying to get at here is, I, I think what we're trying to say is we really want to embody communities where Jesus is the actual Lord and center of that community, and we are all longing to experience that living God. And and Mike, to your, you, you actually ask, I think, a very prescient and important question, because for a lot of people who are going through the deconstruction process, who have experienced real lived trauma in the church, to just say, go back to church is like telling somebody to go back to the spouse who's been beating you. And I am not saying in any way, shape, or mm -hmm. form, if we have been a part of an environment that has traumatized us, abused us, or harm us, that we need to go back. Heck no. Mm -hmm. That is a very dangerous uh, approach. Mm -hmm. um, it just so happens, though, that at least in my environment, mo more often than not, when someone walks away from the church, it is not because of trauma or abuse. It is more often than not just a, a sort of meh. Uh, brunch is better. Yeah. And, mm -hmm. and I just... That, that is the kind of spirit that I'm approaching. If I were walking mm -hmm. with somebody who'd been traumatized by the church, that person deserves our utmost respect and honor to go through the journey that they need to go through to heal well. And just mm -hmm. saying go back to church can be taken as a very trite and at times very dangerous uh, response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's good. So I guess before we, before we close, someone is... Um, and I think let's, like you said, let's, let's, because I think it takes us into a different form of conversation. So we're not necessarily talking about the person that has been really like severely traumatized or has had some kind of really awful church experience. Um, and we're not necessarily talking about someone who, or maybe we are talking about someone who is just sort of like having trouble looking at culture and, and the things that they see. And so some, so someone who's doing that, or maybe they, they really are, they're in the same place you were AJ, where you had a very important question and you asked somebody and they just didn't have an answer for you. Um, and I'm sure that you touch on this all throughout your book, but what are, what do they do? What are some things to do? What are some roads to mm -hmm. go down and what are some roads not to go down? I always like to say, uh, you know, for me, deconstruction was, you know, smoking a pipe and reading blue like jazz and, and Rob Bell, <laughs> you know, in my young twenties, that was deconstruction. And look at you now. But, but I did have a time in my mid twenties where 
I wasn't deconstructing. I was just living in sin, you know, <laughs> like let's call it what it was. He confessed but, some of these sins but, to me recently. But here's the thing. <laughs> I never stopped going to church even when I didn't want to be there and I actually wanted nothing to do with it. And still to mm -hmm. this day, it's the thing that ultimately kept me from going too far down a path mm -hmm. that by the time I was ready to stop being the way that I was being, I had not made too many awful decisions to completely derail, mm -hmm. you know, my life. Mm -hmm. So I love mm -hmm. and would till I'm blue in the face say, be in a good, healthy mm -hmm church community that you feel safe in. But mm -hmm. other than that, someone is in college or they're questioning these things. <laughs> what, what are some like basic steps they can take yeah, that's good. Um, to, to work through this in a way that's constructive? Well, I, I think I would say, uh, I would say three, 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 three things um, that immediately come to mind um, as, as important steps for that person who is walking through these experiences. The first one would be this. Embrace the question as a form of spiritual formation. Um, my uh, friend Nijay Gupta, who's a New Testament scholar, and I um, do a podcast ourselves called In Faith and Doubt, in which we talk about the, the, the ups and downs, the challenges that come with deconstruction and doubt. And in one of our episodes, we talk about what we call slow theology. And the idea here is that when somebody in the early church, when the New Testament was being written, Many of the writings of Paul, for example, Paul wrote, we know 13, we know at least he wrote 13 epistles or letters. Mm -hmm. And each one of those letters probably was a response to a series of questions that he had received. And when you think about the questions that had been sent to Paul, you know, we think about it like an email, like you got it and just respond and sort of super quick. When in reality, <laughs> it probably took six months for those questions to get to Paul. And then they didn't get a letter back for six months, mm. which would mean this, that the earliest Christians, when they had a question about Jesus, they asked it, but probably had to sit on it for about a month, for about a year. Mm -hmm. Well, what do you do when you have a theological question for a year and you don't have an answer? Well, you have to like pray <laughs> and, and like talk to each other and like, show up to dinner together and, and, mm -hmm. and like invite real conversation with brothers and sisters in Jesus. Cause Paul's letters coming, but it's like nine months out. Mm -hmm. And, and we talk about, I think there's something to be said about the fact that more often than not now, when we have a question, we go for the immediate answer in a podcast or some, some tweet, or we go to mm -hmm. some celebrity and mm -hmm. we sidestep we sidestep the slow process of what our questions do to us. Here's what I'm trying to say. Number one, embrace that question as a lifelong question that mm -hmm. could potentially make you a really deep person. Mm -hmm. um, That's really I, I had this. Mm -hmm. I had this friend uh, when we were in Portland who, on, on the sexuality conversation, um, decided to take a year to go away and just read all the books on sexuality and they were going to come back and make a decision about what they thought. And I was really hurt by that as their pastor, because I felt like that person was willingly cutting me out of their life to find answers from everybody else. But the one person who had like been laying their life down to serve them. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to say to that person, first of all, don't cut me out. But secondly, you're only giving a year. How about give 50 years? Mm -hmm. 
How about 60? Because questions like that, we become the questions we ask them over the course of a lifetime. And I think that's why I love people like Henry Nouwen and C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton is when you read them, they're asking the same question over and over and over again over like a 40-year period. Mm. And those questions just make you deep. So I think I would say, stop seeing your question as a problem. I think it's an invitation from Jesus to go deep. Number two um, is, is I, I would suggest um, that when, when we're facing those kinds of questions, that we need to remember that Christians have been wrestling with these questions for 2,000 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a, a line, Esau Macaulay in one of his writings, he talks about how uh, when he ever, whenever he teaches on a hard text in the Bible, like violence in the Old Testament or something, that students always think like when they hear about that, that they're like, oh my gosh, I've stumbled across this new question that nobody's ever asked. Mm-hmm. Like I found it, the question that Christians can't handle. <laughs> and I think we tend to think these are new questions. And the truth is there's no new question. Mm-hmm. And Christians have been wrestling with this stuff for 2000 years. And we can assume that there's wisdom in the church that we can listen to. We just got to find it. It's there. It's not that it's not there. It's, it's there. And I think the third thing I say for the person who's wrestling with doubt and deconstruction is stop reading books that were published in the last 20 years and read mm-hmm. dead people, mm-hmm. read dead Christians. And here's why dead Christians um, don't care about what our culture thinks They don't care about the majority. They don't care about the sensibilities of our moment. They are a prophetic witness from the past. And the the great thing about dead people is we can't offend them. So dead people, in the words of C.S. Lewis, the democracy, forgive me, uh, uh, Chesterton, Chesterton, the democracy of the dead, tradition, really, 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 us evangelicalish people, we've got to return to tradition. And not in the same way we return to the Bible, but I'm saying Mm -hmm. we need to return to the voices of the dead who have gone before us because there's so much tradition that has beauty and glory. And there's a difference. Yurislav Pelikan says there's a difference between the embers and the ash. I'm not talking about the ash. We want the embers. Mm. Those embers that still carry the life of Christ down through the history of the church. Read Dead Christians. Read Dead Christians. Read Dorothy Sayers. Uh, read, read, yeah, just read the, read St. Athanasius. <laughs> mm-hmm. Read Dead Christians. Um, that They're not interested in, 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 in sounding cool. They're interested in truth. That's Love great. That. Awesome. Well, That's AJ, advice. thank you so much for your time. Um, thanks for, for talking with us, and thanks for being so open um, to have this conversation. It's an absolute joy. I wish I was on that same couch with the two of you someday uh, uh, next year on the couch. I'll be with you. Um, yes, exactly. Come on. Exactly. We're not too far from you at Filler, so so we'll make it happen. You guys are great. Thanks for having me. Thank, Thank you. you.